You're listening to a podcast from Heart. Welcome to this edition of the uh, podcast. My name is Alistair Lindsay, and we're broadcasting today from the Excel Centre in London's Docklands. This year, the host of the British Cardiovascular Society 2013 Scientific Meeting. I'm delighted to be joined today uh, by Dr. Anthony Di Maria, the long-standing editor of the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, who is due to speak uh, later on today about some of the challenges facing clinical trials and how they relate to clinical practice. Dr. Di Maria, welcome. Thank you very much. So we're delighted to have you here and we wondered if we could start a little bit by talking about the clinical research environment that we find ourselves in in 2013. On the one hand, in an economically tough times, I understand that basic research is in some ways struggling to find uh, good cash to fund those studies. On the other hand, in the clinical realm, it seems now that there are more and more studies coming along and more and more research being undertaken. And as the editor of Jack, I'd be interested to know your thoughts on that. Well, I, I think these are difficult times financially, and uh, of course, research is one of those things that's not absolutely necessary for survival, so it's quite easy to cut that. From the standpoint of clinical investigation, uh, in cardiovascular medicine, we really led the, the, the rest of medicine overall in terms of developing evidence, uh, evidence-based medicine uh, supported by guidelines and, and whatnot. And this has been based on, on megatrials. It's become the, the standard now to have a, a multi-center, randomized, controlled uh, uh, trial that prospectively examines a question. And we've become so accustomed to this kind of information that I'm afraid that the pendulum has overswung and we've neglected to see the value in, in clinical judgment. Uh, now, now uh, clinical evidence is important. These multi-center trials are, are wonderful, but they're group data and they're obtained from huge numbers of patients. But that information has to be applied to one patient at a time. And that's where clinical judgment comes in. That's where the wisdom of an individual physician, knowing the patient that they're taking care of, has a role to play in, in whether or not that clinical trial information gets translated into that patient at all or in part. And that's really what my, my talk has to do with a lot of the talk being on the fact that uh, we've tended to overlook some of the limitations of clinical trials, and it's awfully important to point those out. I mean, maybe that's the next place to go. So one of those that I know you've talked about in the past is, is surrogate endpoints. And surrogate endpoints can be in many ways useful to give us an idea of whether they are going to predict clinical outcomes, but it isn't always the case. And uh, I think you've given a nice example in the past of the, uh, of the CAST trial. Uh, yeah, I was on the steering committee of the cardiac arrhythmia suppression trial, and we knew patients post-myocardial infarction who had arrhythmias had an increased mortality, and we knew we had drugs that could make premature ventricular contractions go away. And so it was reasonable to test the hypothesis that if we gave the drugs to those patients who had the arrhythmias and eliminated the arrhythmias, that we would prolong survival. But in fact, we reduced survival. Uh, not only did the PVCs go away, the patients went away. And, and so 
that's the quintessential example of a surrogate endpoint, the surrogate being PVCs, that was misleading in, in regard to how the patient would do overall. But there's lots of examples. We've used blood pressure many times, and we have drugs that can lower blood pressure, but not necessarily prolong life. We've got a gross of, of inotropic agents, milrinone, visnarinone, that increase cardiac output wonderfully well but unfortunately reduce survival. And most recently, we've got all of the CTEP inhibitors, torceptipib, dalceptipib, that are incredibly potent at increasing HDL, but not at changing clinical events. So, so that surrogate endpoints are treacherous, I believe. Sure. So do you feel we swung, therefore, too far away from hard clinical endpoints? I mean, obviously, we come back to the economic pressures of the current climate and things again. We can understand why people are looking for faster answers. But from what you're very clearly seeing, surrogate endpoints most often perhaps don't give us those answers. So do we need to re-emphasize clinical trials? Or can we promote them any more than we are doing? Well, I, I think... I think there's already been a movement in, in that direction. I, I think now surrogate endpoints are recognized as a useful signal. I, I mean, certainly, if you give a drug and it doesn't have any effect at all, it's not likely to be a benefit. So if you get a good effect on a surrogate endpoint, that's a signal that would justify looking further. But I think I think the medical community overall has come to appreciate, certainly journal editors have come to appreciate, that uh, it's hard endpoints that really carry the day. Uh, it's, it's mortality and morbidity. It's living longer or living happier that count. Not whether or not, I've never had a patient say, oh, I feel so much better now that my LDL has been reduced. No one ever says that. But I can imagine that must be a dilemma you face on at least weekly, if not daily oh. basis. You must get a lot of good manuscripts sent to you. But as you say, if you're not quite sure how this is going to influence patient outcomes at the end of the day, how, do you, how on earth do you weigh that up? Well, it, it, it certainly, we've, we've come to the point where a surrogate endpoint uh, is, is a, a bit of a negative as we evaluate a, a trial. As I say, surrogate endpoints can be important midway, midway steps, but if, if that's all it is, and then, and, and now you're getting my editor side going, uh, then what really gets you is when somebody sends in an endpoint comparing one surrogate endpoint to another, neither one of which has been shown to affect the end. Well, that, the manuscripts are not likely to appear in Jack. I'll tell you that much. I can, I can tell you there's a lot of cardiologists taking notes as we speak. So uh, could we move on just talk about a, a couple of issues that certainly influence what we're, we're describing? And that's um, incomplete publication of trials and non-publication of, of negative trials. Uh, it, it, are those things that you feel are, they've obviously been an issue for a while. Do you think we're getting any better in those regards or, or not? Well, the non-publication was a serious issue, and it was recognized uh, by almost everybody. And, and several years ago, uh, steps were taken so that medical journals now will not publish manuscripts on clinical trials that have not been pre-registered in an open database. Uh, the one that's most commonly used is clinicaltrials.gov in the United States, but there are others. And, and so 
at least now there is a repository of clinical trials that have been undertaken. Um, uh, we don't know necessarily that they've been completed or what the findings are, but, but that they've at least been undertaken. And, and, and that can be accessed. And, and uh, uh, whether, whether or not that solved the, the issue completely, I, I doubt it, because there is still this enormous uh, uh, lack of enthusiasm in publishing negative papers on the part of the authors, on the part of the sponsors, and on the part of editors who look at them and say, these are not going to be cited. They're not going to help us. Now, what's much more serious, I think, is incomplete publication. I believe that's much more serious. And Could we just define that for the, the right. listeners? Uh, what, what I would define as incomplete publication is selective publication of data that was gathered in a clinical trial uh, without simultaneous publication of other data. In other words, some data are withheld, some data are, are reported. And, and, and this can be terribly uh, problematic and misleading. And in the lecture I give, uh, I, I have a slide that's, that's the, the work of, of an analysis comparing reported trials to public tri published tri trials in journals that find some 40% of them are incompletely reported and that over 80% of those that are incompletely reported, the incomplete reporting favors positive findings. And, and so now if we take the, that first fix, which is making authors, uh, making investigators uh, uh, deposit their protocol in an open database. Now the second step is when a manuscript comes in, we can go back to that database and say, now wait a minute, you know, you're reporting on, on item X, but you also report it measured item B. Where, where is that? And, and why is it that you're not telling us about that? So, but, but who, who will do that is the question. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think regulation is the one word that springs to mind there. I mean, you mentioned um, clinical trials at Gov, which I think is well known universally now, but in each individual country and each individual sponsoring body, it's hard to see who could have overarching authority. And maybe that comes back again to the, the role of the journal editor. Well, it, it does. And, and I personally, philosophically felt that we were, we being journals, we were the wrong answer to that question. We were an answer, but the problem was that, that there was no record of what trials were being done. And so, so the authorities went to the final endpoint, which was the journal the publication in the journal. And they said, all right, journal, article, uh, journal editors, we want you to say that you won't publish anything unless it's been registered, because that way we, we can ensure. And, and, and it makes us policemen when we shouldn't be policemen. And what's more ridiculous, you see, if someone sends me a manuscript next week that contains the cure for cancer, and it hasn't been pre-registered. 
should, should, should I say, I'm sorry, I can't publish that paper. <laughs> that, that's silly. So, um, but, but in any event, I, I think it's, I think it's been, it's, it's been quite effective so far because the word spread very quickly and I would say 98% of all the clinical trials that we have submitted to us have indeed been registered at one of the open databases. Fantastic. So progress at least to, to some extent. There. Exactly, exactly. Great. Well, thank you for sharing those insights. Just to, for the final few minutes, I'd be grateful if we could just shift tack slightly. One uh, thing that's very evident, I'm sure, over your tenure at, at Jack in particular, has been that we've seen a real shift in the way that doctors share information and that cardiovascular researchers share information. So here we are indulging in a podcast, and um, there, the, the amount of information now online is is, is huge. And but it, has that been a challenge to move from a sort of paper-based uh, research uh, environment towards a more digital one? And, and how of how is, have you gone about that? Have there been specific issues? Well, it, sure. I, when I uh, was selected to be the editor of Jack now some 11 years ago, I was assured that within five years there would no longer be print journals. And within the past year, we did another survey of people who receive our journal. And uh, based on that survey, uh, over two-thirds of the respondents indicated they still read the journal in print and not online. Now, uh, uh, to me, that's been surprising because uh, I've been forced to live my life online. I mean, we couldn't, 6,000 manuscripts a year. There's no way we could handle all that that paper. Uh, we, we do everything online and we've accommodated. And, and the advantages of reading the journals online are, are so great. You get streaming video instead of a stop frame. You get immediate access to, to references. In fact, you can often get immediate access to additional material like guidelines and, and um, podcasts, for instance, on a given topic uh, with, with a single keystroke. Uh, and, and you can rapidly switch through. So, uh, you, you know, you look at it and you say, my goodness, why would anybody go back to paper where, where you don't have any of that? Well, I, I, I mean, the people who, who still like paper, they, uh, they point to the fact that it's, it's more difficult to take your laptop to the bathroom, for instance, if that's where you want to do some reading. And it's hard to make notes in the side and, and to, to outline and, and whatnot. But I think with tablets now, I thought, I, I thought with, with the advent of tablet computers, that that would, would uh, you know, take us over the hump because it's essentially the same as reading a book. I haven't read a book as a book in years. I download them on a, on a tablet. Um, and, and it has all, almost all the advantages of, of a standard laptop in reading your article. And, and plus, it, it's easy, it's convenient, it's, it's, it's like a print version of the journal. But still, uh, pe people cling to print. So that um, I, I, I think that certainly for my lifetime, which hopefully is a little bit longer, but for my lifetime, I think that we're looking at a, a, a dual medium 
world where there'll be both print and online. And I see a gradual shift to online where we're doing more and more on appendices, online appendices, uh, shorten the print version of the manuscript and put figures and, 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 and so on online. And, and I believe that shift will occur, especially as the younger generation matures. But it's not going to come quickly. And, uh, and I think anyone who uh, envisions the disappearance of print media uh, ought to look at what's happening now to music and, and the uh, a sudden reinterest in, in records as, as compared to uh, digital music. So uh, one final question, if I may. So we go online and uh, we find the randomized controls trials and we, we think about the pros and cons of those. And as you just mentioned, one of the advantages is we can quickly click to a, a guideline or, or something like that. Uh, that's just one final question I'd be grateful for your thoughts on, because here in the, in the UK, I mean, we have a the variety of guidelines available to us. So we have European guidelines, which technically we are part of Europe and should follow. We certainly have UK guidelines from specialist societies like the British Cardiovascular Society. Society, but also from the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, so NICE. So uh, we already have three sets of guidelines that we can take into account. Do you, do you feel the, the role of guidelines is, is in any way being watered down by the number that are available? And do you think people tend to fall back on randomized trials more? Obviously, one should inform the other, but there can be a lag behind guidelines keeping up to date with, with the latest evidence. Yeah, I, I think that's a problem. You've hit on, a, on an important problem that uh, there are so many people generating guidelines now and, and, and differences do exist. Uh, and, and so uh, as some of my colleagues joke that depending upon the patient, they'll select one guideline or another to follow. I, I think in, in my own review of this that the substance of most guidelines are similar. The really substantive issues are, are, are similar. And, and the differences uh, tend to be in the more peripheral aspects of what, whatever the guideline uh, pertains to. And, and I, I really don't know what the answer is. In the, in the United States, uh, we've had this uh, kind of unprecedented coming together of the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, so, so that, you know, our, our guidelines, really, instead of AHA and ACC, each doing their own guidelines, uh, uh, we do them together, and we think that's been a help. And, and increasingly, we reach out so that if it's uh, on electrophysiology, we'll try to get the Heart Rhythm Society involved. If it's on interventional cardiology, we'll try to get SCAI and whatnot. Uh, and we've even reached out to the European Society of Cardiology uh, because if you had those three bodies, they really represent, I think, at, at the moment, the leading authorities uh, uh, in, in cardiology. And, and I would love to see more of that. But I, I do think you've, you've hit on, on, on a bit of a dilemma, which is uh, this, this kind of malignant proliferation of, of, of guidelines. Yeah. 
Well, uh, Dr. De Maria, thank you so much for, for joining us here in uh, London. I'm really grateful for that summation of many of the, the most relevant points in contemporary cardiology practice, and we look forward to your talk uh, very shortly. Sure, thank you very much. Thank you. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.